out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. I'm with you for the next 60 plus minutes. As I often say at this point, playing the finest in indie pop and sometimes beyond. Well, this week we are going to be turning back the clock slightly because, as you know, we love a special guest. And this is going to be Eric Bell, guitarist with them, featuring Van Morrison for a few months anyway. And then also the um, Thin Lizzy, those very early years before playing with people like Noel Redding. And he's now still touring as Eric Bell, playing the work of Thin Lizzy and much, much more. This is the interview, and after a few minutes chat, I began by asking that very interesting question, those early musical influences. Eric, it's over to you. Well, uh, the first two was uh, Lonnie Donegan. He was the very first one. And The Shadows. Right. Yes. I know... Um, both, of, both of those blew me away. Yeah. And I know Bob Dylan was always very influenced by Lonnie Donegan as well. So obviously, at those that time, that was, that was kind of, um, yes, hugely influential. And then when did you sort of f- f- first play a guitar? Uh, well, uh, <clears throat> the first one I got was when I was about 10, and it was a plastic one I got for Christmas. But it was, um, it was actually quite playable for a plastic guitar. Yes. Um, and I just messed about on it, and I lost interest. And then about, um, when I was about four, 13, 14, um, I got interest again, and I bought an acoustic. Yes. So that was about about 14. Yeah, so that was kind of like towards the sort of the la- latter part of the 50s that you started to um, sort of... Yeah. Get, yes. And, yeah. And, and did you have any particular teacher or sort of... Uh, friends who were also playing, you know, music at that no. time? Well, um, I went for one lesson to a, a Spanish guitar player and I didn't go back. And um, I just started learning off records, yes. you know. And, did your, and, was you, and were you from a musical family at all? Were they, was there kind of a general... No. no. But they all loved music, you know. Every one of them used to sing around the house and, you know... And, they were all very fond of music, but they didn't play a musical instrument. Yes. And what was the sort of the soundtrack in the 60s? Because that was that decade where everything seemed to change quite radically from the sort of 60s. It, absolutely. It was, a, it was a definite revolution. Yes. Definitely. Yeah. And uh, I remember, I suppose it's like everyone says it really, but we had the big wireless in the corner, that's all there was, and it was on permanently. And... Um, a lot of classical music was on it during the day, which I loved. And um, the top 20 that was around in those days was quite corny. You know, uh, how much is that doggy in the window? And um, <laughs> I'm a pink toothbrush, you're a blue toothbrush. Um, that's what was being played as far as popular music was concerned. Yeah. Uh, and it went on and on like that for quite a while until... One day I heard Lonnie Donegan and I had never heard anything like it in my life. It just I said, Who is this? And he started the whole thing, uh, the skiffle craze. Yeah. And obviously that 
that kind of um, inspired and also sort of, I guess, motivated a lot of people to have a go, if if nothing else. So Absolutely. Was... It inspired Keith Richards, John Lennon. Yes. And um, they they, uh, they do mention him all the time. And I know Bob Dylan does as well, because he was very, okay. you know, he was always very influenced by Lonnie Donegan. I know, because one of my, you know, heroes who wasn't a musician, but he was definitely big in the world of being a DJ, it was John Peel and his kind of love of people like Lonnie Donegan. So, um, yes, okay. that that was one of the ones. And did you start, when did you start sort of, if you did, sort of getting interested in kind of blues guitarists as well? Because people like Brian Jones and the, the Stones were obviously sort of huge fans of that, that sort of sure. back catalogue. I just wondered when those kind of musicians started to enter your orbit. Well, as I said, like the Shadows were... I was bowled over by them, and still am. I love them to death. Um, and I was a real Shadows fan, and I was in a Shadows group that we formed. Um, and it went on like that, and then one day I went up to rehearsal, and the bass player had these really weird-looking EPs and obscure-looking albums, and he put them on, and it was like uh, Howlin' Wolf, and Muddy Waters, and I'm going, what the fuck is this? Um, it was like um, black magic sort of music to me. Yes. You know, oh, very, very strange, very earthy, um, really strange lyrics, and the way they sang, and the way they played the guitar, it was, it was very, very strange to me completely. It took me a long time to get into it. But... Um, once I started getting into the blues, I I absolutely loved it, you know. Yes, and then did you? I mean, to, as the sixties progressed, obviously there had been, as as mentioned, sort of a huge revolution from that early sixty two, sixty three period with That's the right. sort of the Beatles. But then you had by sixty yeah. seven this incredible change, which was only five years with this kind of the, the summer of love and this kind of huge influence of people like Hendrix coming along in the doors and then the sort of whole yes. West Coast scene. Yep. So was was that kind of counterculture, kind of, was that slightly filtering over to to Ireland at that stage? I just wondered what, what that was. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Though it was much later. Ireland was always, always behind England in those days, you know, maybe five, six years behind England. Um, where the change actually happened was uh, Van Morrison was in a, a show band called the Monarchs, uh, an Irish show band from Belfast, and they played in England. I think they were doing army camps and things like this. Uh, I think on one of his nights off, Van Morrison went down to one of the clubs in London, and he saw two or three rhythm and blues groups playing on stage with long hair. They didn't wear uniforms on stage and so on. So he got this idea of when he came back to Belfast, he would try and get something like that together himself. So to cut a long story short, he got the Maritime Club, uh, which was a a seaman's mission for retired seamen. And he went to them and they had a hall and they asked him, could he hire out the hall? And he did this. And he got in touch with some other guys. Uh, at that stage, his hair plus the other guys that he was with started growing quite long, which was very unusual in Belfast. Anyway, he formed a band called Them, and it was the first rhythm and blues club in Ireland. And 
the first night about six people turned up and about three weeks later you couldn't get in the place. It was stuffed. Yes. So that was my first uh, my first idea that something was happening in Belfast and I went along for the maritime and I eventually got in one night and I went in and I saw what was happening. And it was amazing. It was just, it was like something you'd never seen or heard before in your life. Uh, incredible rhythm and energy coming from the stage. And Morrison would be pissed out of his head, <laughs> you know, yes. falling through the drum kit. And honestly, it was unreal. So that was my first liking to all that sort of revolution, which it definitely was a revolution. Yes. And obviously, I mean, you're still sort of in the early years of doing the guitar. So were you were you practising kind of like full on up from then on? I mean, just to sort of... Because I, I always remember hearing, you know, stories of Jimi Hendrix that would just be practising all day. He'd be sort of, you know, cooking breakfast or going to the toilet or, you know, he just had his guitar around yeah. his neck all the yeah. time. And you realise that's why, you know, he started to develop he, as he did because he didn't just... Absolutely. You know, didn't well, yeah, uh, I sort of... I was a bit of a... I don't know, a bit of a uh, Belfast cowboy in those days, you know. I didn't know me ass from the elbow. And um, I was leaving all these jobs, all these nine-to-five jobs that I had that were desperate, like the Belfast Rope Works, the Pickle Factory, Falls Mills, uh, like dead-end jobs. And I had no interest whatsoever in them. So I was, I was having a lot of trouble with my family because they were wondering, what are you going to do with your life? And I said, uh, I want to be a guitar player. <laughs> you know, what? Um, at one point, they were going to sell it. And anyway, I one night I come back from one of the jobs and I lay down in the bed and I just I smoked about ten cigarettes, looked up at the ceiling and said, Listen, what are you going to do? Are you going to take this guitar seriously, or are you just going to mess about on it? So I, I made a vow to myself that night. It was one of those moments, you know. Yes. Uh, especially when you're around 16, 17. It means everything to you. So I, I said, right, whenever you come back from work, you're going to get your dinner and you're going to go upstairs and practice for two, two and a half hours every night. Friday nights as well, Saturday nights. When I used to go out with my mates and go out with girlfriends, and all of a sudden I was like this, hermit you know up in my room trying to get the guitar together yes so i would i was working at it when i could then i have to go to a job uh and come back that night and just don't go out i just sat with a record player on my guitar packed of cigarettes looked at all my heroes on the bedroom wall you know <laughs> saying right someday i'm going to play there you know, like the Marquee Club in London was like a sort of a shrine, you know. Absolutely, yes. Um, but I just, I just kept at it, and um, I joined some really pathetic Irish show bands. But, but they were full time; they were professional. So I could give up my crummy day job, and I, uh, the first band I went away with was based in Glasgow. Uh, one of the worst Irish show bands you ever heard in your life. <laughs> it, it was embarrassing. But I was away from home when I was I was with the boys, you know, 
Yes. Uh, it, went on, it went on like that, and then that broke up, and I had to come home and get a day job again. And then I got an offer to go to Leeds in Headingley with another Irish show band, so I went away to Leeds, and it was even worse than the first band, you know. <laughs> um, and it just it, it seemed to go on like that, you know. Yes. Um, but then, I mean, you know, Jimi Hendrix, you know, also used to just play whoever backing guitar for any band in any, any place. Sure, he, yeah. He was on that circuit for a long time, which I can't quite he remember. He was. So, you know, I mean, a lot of people, and I know that I, I did an interview with Fast Eddie from Motorhead, and he, he said that, you know, he you know had to learn guitar, then he was in various kind of kind of just rocking bands that just, you know, you just had to put in the hours. But it kind of gave him the sort of, I suppose, the back... The, the, the necessary yeah. wherewithal to sort of become part of Motorhead. So again, you know, it kind of does work, but you kind of have to put the hours in, don't you? There's that kind of... Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. Uh, you know, I used to think, as a lot of people think, that uh, Jimi Hendrix just took a lot of drugs. And if you took a lot of drugs, you'd end up playing like Hendrix, which is a load of bollocks, you know. Um, <laughs> yes. He's obviously worked his ass off. I oh, know. Well, there's that guy. There's a guy called Malcolm Gladwell who'd got this hundred thousand hour theory that you know if you put hundred thousand hours of practice, you you will create something that is absolutely brilliant. And you know, and he kind of worked through things like the Beatles, how many hours they would have done to practice before they did Sergeant Pepper and and other you know other people who developed computers or other, or something yeah. quite brilliant. And and so it was like, well, you know, to be honest, they got there not because of being born with a talent. It's actually they did sort of an awful lot of work. And I always remember. I think it was Ch Chaz Chandler from the um, the Animals. You know, who managed Hendrix. Just was a bit amazed that he just, you know, Hendrix just played guitar all all day, just practicing for hours yeah. on end. You know, so it wasn't it wasn't kind of luck. It wasn't you know like well, it's the same with George Best, isn't it? Who I used to love when I was growing up. That you know, it he, is. He, you know, he just played football on the streets all the time. Yeah. But then, That's funny fine. enough, he would say, you know, he was a natural. But you're saying, yeah, but you did practice every day until you, uh, you know, went from the time you could walk to to when you played, for, sure. you know, for Man United. But so, I mean. Even if you are a natural, you know, um, you still have to you still have to work at it. Yes, I know. There's no doubt about it. Well, there's always those stories, especially with sports people like who, you know, they sort of talked about the, a genius who never quite made it because they they lost their way. And often, I don't know. I, I'm also a big fan of Roy Keane, and I mean, it was like, you know, you you have to you have to have the skill, but the dedication. But you also have to ride, you know, like those tact. Tackles and and have the attitude to sort of pick yourself Absolutely. up, and it's the picking yourself up. And obviously, some people yeah. do and some people don't. I mean, anyway. So that was that. So then you you did have a brief moment though with them, didn't you? Yeah, uh, the first them uh, left Belfast and they went to England, and they had a hit record with uh, the "Baby Please Don't Go," and they did the English circuit, uh, and then they they came back to Belfast and broke up. And then Van formed a second them, a different lineup, and they went to the states that time, and uh, they had a hit with uh, "Here Comes the Night," and they toured the states for quite a while, and then they came home to Belfast, broke up again, and the th <clears throat> the third them was formed, which I was in, called Van Morrison and them again, and um, <laughs> I was only with them for about probably about two months but uh, what an experience that was I mean God almighty yes and did oh, it man. 
And how, and how did you cope with your nerves? Because obviously, you know, Van, you know, Van was a, a total legend at that stage, and you know, you were sort of one of your first bands to be in, apart from the show band. So, I mean, I just wonder what that was like to, you know, to be, because there are some very iconic front men, aren't there? You know, from people like. You know, Mick Jagger to David Bowie, you know, to, yes, sure. people like Prince. So be, being behind someone like that must, and, and Jim Morrison. So being behind someone like that must be quite an education. Well, it was. Uh, and as such, like there was two instances. Um, I met him in time one day when I, was at a, when I was in this music shop called Crimble's. And every Saturday afternoon, about 40 or 50 musicians would meet in that music shop, but nobody would buy anything. So we'd all be swapping stories and, oh, there's a gig going with him and, oh, we're looking for a bass player. So it was like a, a, a grapevine. And one day Van Morrison walked in and the, the whole everybody stopped talking. And he went upstairs. And about three minutes later, he came down with uh, one of the salesmen who was pointing roughly over in my direction. I, I, did, I didn't think anything more about it, except when Van walked over to me and he says, uh, I see you from a, and we walked out in the street, and he he says blah blah blah. Um, do you know where Hindford Street is? And I said, yeah, it's about fifteen minutes walk from where I lived in East Belfast. So I went up to his house that night with my guitar, and he auditioned me. Um, well, he put on a tape, a, a beautiful tape recorder, and he had about three or four songs, and he says, uh, okay, man, just jam along with these. He was the first guy I ever met to call me man. Uh, okay, man, you want to jam along with <laughs> So I jammed along with them. And then a few weeks later, we had our first electric rehearsal. And he had a bass player and a drummer, and me and himself. And we started doing uh, Gloria. So about halfway through it, he stops, waves his hands and stops. And he comes over to me and he goes, Listen, you're supposed to fucking shout it. Not Westford, you know, like Gloria. Yes. And I looked at him and I thought, right, will I tell him to stuff his band or will I just, will I stick around and see what's going to happen? So I stuck around. Anyway, the first gig was in about two weeks' time in Belfast, in Belfast City Centre, in a club called the Square One Club. And we we actually opened it that night. And it was like, it must have been about 500 people there trying to get into a 200 um type club so anyway we went on and I had this song list on top of my amplifier the first song was Baby Please Don't Go so I'm getting ready to start that intro and Tom walks over to me he says uh, start a blues and A man I said what 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 about the list fuck the list <laughs> start a blues and A <laughs> And the drummer, I heard the drummer counting it in, so away we went. And that's what it was like all the time. Blimey, that must have been just, quite just a moment. Fly, just flying blind, you know? Yes. And but did, what an experience. And did you play Gloria? Uh, I'm not even sure. He, uh, There's people shouting off for songs they knew and he wouldn't do them. <laughs> and, and he would... Uh, the thing was, which was very strange, he also played a, a little bit of guitar, not a great technician, but a great feel. And he would start these little riffs um, just out of the top of his head and start singing lyrics off the top of his head. And we would come in and follow him. 
and that's what it was like. It was uh, it was like sort of nearly semi jazz, you know. Yeah. Um, I was only about 16, 17 at that time. My God, you must have felt like the, a young gun. Rocky. Oh, it was unreal, absolutely unreal. Yes, I mean, God. And most people have, who I've interviewed, I mean, they have kind of the, that one moment in a band and then things don't often end that well and then they often give music up. But, but then, you know, you sort of, from that experience, sort of become part of Thin Lizzy, which is quite an amazing moment as well because... Because often, yeah, I mean, what you'd already done in the 60s is pretty impressive. But then to hit the 70s within Lizzie must have felt like quite an unreal experience. So how did that, those early years form? Because cause with a lot of the people I've interviewed often, you know, and this is, I suppose, a lot of them from the 80s. I mean, there was a lot of unemployment at the time and, you know, people didn't have much else to do. So they sort of formed bands and then, you know, sure. John Peel would sort of give them a session and then, you know, they would go from a session to the first album. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so what was it like in that particular time? Because obviously the '60s had come to a close with, you know, the death of Hendrix, you know, uh, Jim Morrison and Janis Joplin. Then you had Alt- sure. Altamont. So it felt like that that kind of that generation who'd done the '60s had all thought, yeah, if they'd survived it, we're going to actually give it all a bit of a, you know, I don't know. I spoke well, to a, I spoke to a few people who and I said, well, what happened? Why did you sort of quit and they said well actually we were just tired we just needed to sleep a bit and it was it was for another group of people to take over and you were obviously part of that next that next wave of people really Mm -hmm. yeah well what happened was uh, like after uh fan sort of stuck around belfast for about three months and then he buggered off to the states because there was nothing happening for him in ireland nothing nobody wanted to know the guy um so I ended up going back to the nine-to-five job and um, living in Belfast and playing the blues at night with little blues bands. And one night I played in the Maritime Club again. And there was a band from Dublin called The Movement, and they were on with us. And they were top of the bill. So at the end of the gig, I'm up on stage packing away my gear. And the singer out of The Movement comes up to me, this Dublin guy. And we start talking, and he says... Uh, do you know a guitar player called Eric Bell? I said, yeah, that's that's me. <laughs> he says, what? We've been looking for you for months to come down to Dublin to to join the movement. I said, you still looking for me? <laughs> he said, no, this is our last gig tonight. Um, and he said, I'm going back to Dublin and there's going to be a new Irish, but a new Irish young show band it's going to be formed around me and we're looking for musicians and if you want to come down to Dublin I'll get in touch with you so I said fair enough so about three weeks passed I didn't, hadn't heard anything so I forgot about it and the next day I got up to go to work there was a little small envelope lying in the hallway I went down, it was for me I opened it up I was like on a piece of toilet paper <laughs> Uh, hi, Eric. Told you to get in touch. Um, if you want to come down for an audition, there's a lift going. If you meet these two guys outside the athletic stores at half one on Thursday morning or Thursday afternoon, they'll bring you down to Dublin. So I, I asked my parents, could I take a day off work? And they said, OK. Went over and met them. And the band that, I was, the band that was going to be formed the new Irish show band had two managers. One was in Belfast and one was in Dublin. 
So me and these two guys went round to the one in Belfast, and he had a big Jaguar Mark II, uh, and he drove us down to Dublin. And I went for this <clears throat> audition, and there was about 300 musicians outside the front door of this building that I, I thought, Jesus, I've got a guitar player by now. Uh, the job must be gone. But this guy came over to me and says, who are you and what do you play? I said, uh, I'm Eric Bell and I play guitar. Right. So he brought me into, the, into this big room and it was a seven-piece band there. They asked me to play something, sing something. And um, I did that. And lo and behold, I got the gig. I couldn't believe it. I got the gig for very good money, uh, staying in the best hotels in Ireland, <laughs> you know, all this stuff. Um, so I stayed in Dublin that night and then I, the next day I went home and told my family, I've got a gig in Dublin, you know, it's worth so much money. It was like £35 a week and I was earning something like £20 in my day job, you know. Yes. It was unreal. So anyway, again, to cut a long story short, I went down to Dublin and I stayed with that band, all great musicians and really nice guys. But after about a year and a half, I was fed up playing Simple Simon Says, and uh, I left the band. And I'd saved some of my wages up in the building society in Dublin. So I told them all I was leaving. And the next week I was unemployed, still having to pay my rent, my food and so on. My money was disappearing. I said, Jesus, what have I done? So I started walking around Dublin on my own, looking in pubs and clubs for musicians to form a three-piece band, and nobody was interested. And I thought, uh, you've done it now, mate. You're going to have to go back to Belfast to the, <laughs> to the day job again. Anyway, that about a week later, I ended up in this place called Countdown Club, this uh, sort of rhythm and blues type club in Dublin and I didn't know even if there was a band playing I just went out for the night and this band came on Orphanage and Philip Liner was the singer and Brian Downey was the drummer and I watched him and Brian Downey's drumming knocked me sideways he was just terrific so anyway I went in to see them they took a break and we started talking and we decided to form a group. And that's how Tim Lizzie formed. God, the classic three-piece. Well, it was a four-piece uh, at the start with Eric Rickson, who was the original keyboard player with them in the Maritime Club. And he was in another show band, very like mine, called Terry and the Tricksons. Yeah. And... Um, he met me that night. We didn't really know each other, but he was called Eric, I was called Eric. We were both from Belfast. We were both in the same type of show band. And we ended up going to the Countdown Club together. And um, he <clears throat> sort of wormed his way into the band. So we had a four-piece. So Thin Lizzy was a four-piece with the keyboards for about four months. And then we went three-piece. Yes. And did you, I mean, 
Things moved quite quickly, though, didn't it? Because a lot of bands often sort of struggle to get some sort of sound that gives them a, a, a sort of a, a uniqueness other than just the usual sort of pub rock sound. So you managed to sort of shift quite quickly and get yourself the attention of a, of yeah, a, of a record was, label as well. Is it Was it because of your name and reputation, you know, the work with I, them? I, I don't know what it was. It was about... Um, like that night when Thin Lizzy formed, that night I just talked about, there was about at least at least 80 groups in and around Dublin all sort of playing, who were all really good players and had been going for quite a long time. And there is us. Uh, we had formed for about, we'd been about five months together and we ended up with a friggin' record contract with Decca in London. Uh, it was unreal. It's just the way things just took off. Yeah, and and then, but you also sort of got the to the attention of some sort of people like John Peel very quickly as well, who gave you a session. So yes, we did. So you you know because actually you know the the interview I did with Fast Eddie, I think they had been together for quite a while, and things weren't going anywhere. And I think they were going to do one last gig and record it, and think then let's go back to our day jobs and you know do sure. some building work. But then you know it just kind of clicked, and they suddenly got a sound that was giving them a bit more of a uniqueness than just the average kind of pub rock band, which were a bit too amplified. So did you did this, did things click with the four of you, and then the three of you quite kind of seamlessly? Well, um, like, in my heart and soul, I wanted a three-piece band, and uh, there we've, we've got a keyboard player. But one day, our manager, um, who was, uh, he was about 16, 17 years of age, Terry O'Neill, he came into our rehearsal room one day, and he said, listen, lads, I have to have a meeting. So we all stopped playing and sat about. He says, it's like this. He says, I know we're getting a few gigs, but the money's not great. And we've got expenses and we've got to hire a van and petrol and food and so on. Um, so either the band goes three-piece or we have to split up. So Eric Gregson looked at us all and he said, all right, when do you want me to leave? <laughs> and um, that's what happened. Yes. We couldn't afford we couldn't afford being a four piece band in a way. So uh, you know, as Terry pointed out, it would be silly for the the drummer to leave or the bass player to leave or probably the guitarist. So it would have to be a keyboard player to leave. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so he left. So uh, that's when we started attracting crowds. When yeah. we became a three piece, yeah, I, I, it was just the chemistry between us, you know. At the time, and we started doing a few original songs, which not many bands in Ireland was doing. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, you brought the album out very well in '71, the the first album titled Thin Lizzy. So, did what? Can you remember much about that recording session of of putting that album? No, together? we were all very stoned. We were, you know, I say this all the time, and. Uh, I hope people don't get the wrong impression, but uh, Thin Lizzy, we were nearly permanently stoned all the time. Uh, it's just smoking, you know. Yes. But a lot of a lot of bands were in those days. It was it just it was that fashion, that time. Everything was new. Um, smoking dope was cool, and it 
it was just like that. And anyway, we went down and recorded the first album, and <laughs> like the reason being was, I remember the first day we were there, and we couldn't believe it that we were actually in London, in Decca Studios. Uh, it was like a dream, and we just kept looking at each other and laughing, you know. And um, the producer came in, uh, like to shake hands with us and so on, and to introduce himself. And um, it turned out it was a guy called Scott English, an American guy who wrote High Hole Silver Lining and Brandy and so on. Anyway, at one point the first day we were there, we were just getting our equipment up, and Philip said to me, Hey, Eric, do you think Scott would mind if I rolled a, a small joint? I said, I don't know, Phil. You better ask him, mate. So Phil goes over to the American Scott English and says, Excuse me, Scott. Be okay if I roll a small joint. Scott Scott says, What do you got there, man? So Phil shows him this little tiny piece of of hash. <laughs> and Scott said, Hold on there. And he pulled open his drawer and there was a bag of a bag of grass <laughs> about the size of a pillowcase. And he put it in the table, he says, Help yourself <laughs> So that's that's when we left the studio, <laughs> more or less, and um, and that was how the first album was done. Yes, and can you remember much about writing and recording the Friendly Ranger? I just because that was the opening track, which is one that you co-wrote with uh, with Phil. Yes, I remember. I remember the night actually. What happened was that um, whenever we, whenever Thin Lizzy formed, um, Philip said to me one day in one of the pubs in Dublin, we had only known each other about six weeks and he said hey Eric um, what do you think of us getting a house together and we can work on our music all the time every day instead of going out to rehearsal rooms once a week he says everybody's starting to do it you know Crossfield Stills and Nash um, Spencer Davis group all these all these groups are starting to get houses together I said yeah brilliant so Philip um, put on his, his suit and his tie and went out. And about four hours later, he came back jangling these keys. He says, I've got it. And we went up, and it was a, a lovely house in a very up-to-do part of Dublin called Clontarf. Uh, and we moved in, and it's just it, we got ourselves a very bad reputation in a very short space of time. They tried to get us out, you know, 50 people signing a petition. Anyway, um, this particular night, I'm sitting playing the guitar, and Philip used to walk past me and say, is that yours, Eric? Meaning, what I'm playing, is it original? And I would say, no, it's off such and such an album. And then one night, he did the same thing. He heard me going, dur, 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 you know, the, uh, the start of uh, the French Ranger, the, friend, the Friendly Ranger. He says, is that yours, Eric? I said, yeah. He says, right, come on. So he had a, he had a bedroom downstairs a little bit, and I would go into his bedroom, two acoustic guitars, and we'd start working on that uh, Friendly Ranger. And um, that's how it happened. Yes, well, that must have been, you must have been, and that was probably the first song you wrote or co-wrote anyway. Yes, 
Yeah, which, I was, yes. Which must have felt very good. Well, um, as I say, Philip had this talent for hearing something, like me maybe playing a, a little riff or a chord sequence, and it would, it, would, it would catch his imagination, and he would say, is that yours, Harry? And I'd go, yeah. And he would immediately start writing a song around it. Um, a, a lot of the time, I would go down to his bedroom, and we'd both work at it. And um, he'd say, Eric, you know, what chord can I use to link this chord to that chord? So we'd be sitting there for maybe an hour uh, working on these original songs. Yes. And then, and this is right, that you then did an album of, of Deep Purple numbers as well. Yeah. The Funky Junction. Yeah. Which must have... That felt... was... Well, that was... Uh, I mean, how that happened was um, we had an office in Dean Street in London and... Our, one of our managers, Chris Morrison, he asked us all to come in one day for a meeting. And we went in and he said, uh, listen, this guy just appeared out of the woodwork, he said, come up to the office and he asked, could I, ha could I have a word with me? And what it is, is he wants you, Thin Lizzy, to record an album of Deep, Deep Purple's greatest hits, basically. And we were all looking at each other going, what? And he says, it's worth a bit of money. And he said, uh, the office needs money, to be honest with you, to pay the phone bills and the rates and this and the other. And it would be great if you would do it. So we all sorry, again looked at each other and Philip said, well, you know, for a start, I can't sing like Ian Gillen. Yeah, I, I just can't sing like that. And anyway, they've got a fabulous keyboard player, John Lord, playing Hammond. We're only a three-piece band. So anyway, we ended up sending over to Ireland for two musicians who played in a deep purple-type tribute band in Dublin. So we got the singer over and the keyboard player, and they they came into the studio with us. Excellent. And you yeah. did, and you did sort of, yeah. It was nine numbers, wasn't it? including Fireball, which was one of their incredibly fast numbers, which must have been. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It took us a while, you know, but uh, and um, it was quite a challenge, you know. But uh, it's actually going to be re-released again. Well, I know. Well, I, I have to say, there's a couple of songs on there, including Speed King, which was always one of my favourite ones, and and Black okay. Knight. But I think Speed King. I mean, I suppose the thing is with Black uh, Deep Purple was that they're very good on riffs, weren't they, Richie Blackmore especially? So did that? Did that kind of having to learn that? Did that sort of help then form the sort of the next kind of musical adventure of Thin Lizzy at all? Because obviously having to learn that must have felt like going to do sort of night school. <laughs> yeah, a bit like that. But um, just talking about that, um, we were playing and we were playing and playing in pubs and clubs all over England, Scotland, and Wales in those days. And one night we were playing in London, and Richie Blackmore was in the audience, and he he obviously did it in the slide. He came into the change room afterwards, like, and I was like, Gah. you know, he looked like a, a witch finder general, you know. <laughs> All this black gear on and that type of hat, and he was he was talking to Philip quite a lot. Um, so about three or four days passed, and we were in 
this uh, pub where we used to rehearse in London, in Kane's Cross. So we're setting up the, uh, the gear this day to rehearse, and Philip says, um, uh, listen, lads, uh, I've got something to tell you. Me and Brown said, yeah. He says, uh, Richie Blackmore's asked me to, join, to form a band with him. And we said, you're fucking joking. He says, no, serious. I was over in his house two days ago, and we were jamming about, and he likes what I do, and how I look, and how I sing. And we might form a band together called Babyface. So Bran and me looked at each other and said, no, well, that's it. You know, it's finished, it's over. Phil says, I don't know what to do about it. So about two or three days later, he says, no, I'm not going to form a band with um, Richie Blackmore. God. Yeah, that's Shocker. what happened. That's a bit of a number. <clears throat> could yeah. Have, the, the history of rock could have changed very differently on that number, really, couldn't it, with that line-up? It's almost a super group. So then, you know, in 72, you were touring with people like Slade, who were huge at the time. Did that also feel like a bit of an experience? Because they were on top of the pops having hits after hits. Oh, man. The first day, well, our manager called us on again for a meeting, and he said, listen... I've got you on the Slade Tour, the biggest band in Britain um, at the moment. And he said, <coughs> excuse me, he said you're on the tour for about two weeks or three weeks with them. And it'll be brilliant exposure. But in a way, we didn't know what we were letting ourselves in for. And I, I sort of sneered down my nose and said, what, only a friggin' pop band? What have you got us on their, on their tour for? Anyway, the first day of the tour with Slade, I, I forget where it was, could have been Newcastle Town Hall. We, were, we went in that afternoon and it was gigantic. We're used to playing pubs and clubs that hold 300 people. And this place held about four or 5,000 with a balcony upstairs and one of these mecca halls. So we're going, Jesus, my God almighty. So we walked up onto the stage and saw Slade's equipment, <laughs> which would, you know, knock down factories, you know. <laughs> the amount of amplification I had was unbelievable. And Susie Quattro was on the same tour as us. So the first night, um, we're in the changing room. And Slade comes in, and they're really nice guys. I mean, really down to earth. Very nice guys. Made us feel so welcome, and so on and so on. Uh, so me and Phil's at one point out in the, one of the corridors, probably having a smoke and talking about something. And the next minute, Susie Quattro comes running past us in tears, holding our bass guitar. Um, me and Phil's in HR going, Jesus, my God, what's all that about? So about 20 minutes later, we go on, and we get booed off the stage, and people are throwing cans at us, and way back home, nigger, and all this stuff. Uh, Philip went up to the mic, he says, for fuck's sake, give us a chance, we're trying our best. And the, the whole crowd, about 5,000 people, started chanting, we want Slade, we want Slade. So we walked off. This is our first gig. 
And we're in the changing room. Just didn't know what happened. And the next minute, the door bangs open and Charles Chandler walks in. He goes, what the fuck was all that about? And we're looking at him. He says, you're in the fucking tour to wake people up for sleep, not send them asleep. And he looks at Philip. He says, you better get your act together, mate, or you're off the fucking tour. And he walks out. And I'm like, like we're all just devastated, but Philip especially, because um, one of Phil's heroes was Jimi Hendrix, who Charles Chandler managed. So to be cut down by Charles Chandler was a big thing for Philip. And he he basically was on the verge of crying. I'd never seen him that low before. So we're all going, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? So we took out we took out our list of songs that we were playing, and a lot of them we'd noticed were quite slow. Some of them nearly semi ballads, uh, quite a few bluesy type slow blues numbers, and so on. And we said, I think we we got to get rid of these. You know, it's the wrong audience. We got to put more rock into there. So we started trying to get a few rock songs together and so on and so on. And Philip especially would be in the wings watching Naughty Holder every night to see how he worked the crowd because he was a a great front man, Naughty. And bit by bit, we started getting a little bit better. Um, We started getting used to play in the very big crowds and so on. So in a way, that was that was definitely the turning point for Philip. I remember that distinctly. Yes, my God, that must have been the cry. And so obviously Susie Quattro had also been booed off stage, hadn't she? Absolutely, Susie Quattro was booed off. Yes. Not nearly every night, but quite a lot of times. Yeah, crikey. They were merciless bastards, weren't they? The sleigh crowd. Yeah. Great band. Yeah, but it, was the, like, it was like the Colosseum, basically, with <laughs> the Romans, you know? Yes. Blimey, it's like doing one of those Reading Rock Festivals where people used to get bottled. So then, when you were bringing up your next album, which you were in, the the uh, Vagabond Bonds of the Western World, do you, um, I mean, you'd had that experience. So did you, when you went in the studio to record that, was had you been shaped by by the Slade Nights? Because obviously, you know, like with the Beatles, when they started playing, their manager thought, Brian, Brian Epstein, well, you were OK, but nothing special. So they get shipped to Hamburg, you know, learn to play live and, and sort of know how to sort of entertain an audience. And then people mm. like Black Sabbath just played and played, didn't they? You know, and then they went in to do their first album and just did it in an afternoon because they'd been playing that set for years did you feel that that had sort of kind of did you sort of feel like you'd all become slightly like adults at that stage well the thing about the third album was um the first album was god love him uh, scott english was so stoned that he used a lot of the wrong guitar solos in the album uh whenever we heard the first album on vinyl i went what the fuck's that that's the wrong guitar solo and so on. Um, so that happened. And then the second album, Shades of Blue Orphanage, um, it was a bit hit hit and miss. You know, we weren't really ready for, to record that, to be honest with you. So a lot of that was made up in the studio. So the third album, Vagabonds, I I made a, 
an oath to myself. And I said, whenever I go in here, I'm going to try and get the best guitar sound I can possibly get. And I'm going to tune up after every friggin' number, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. So anyway, the first day we went into the studio, I was deadly serious, and the road managers had set up all our gear. So I went into the engineer, introduced myself, and I said, uh, I'm going to go out and play guitar for a few minutes. Could you tape it and let me hear it whenever I come in? He said, uh, you're okay, man. So I went out and I messed about. I tried to get a good tone and so on. And uh, I sort of gave him a signal and played for about 30, 40 seconds. Put the guitar down, walked in, and I said, can I hear that? And he played it back, and it was... <laughs> It was like a different person playing a different guitar. It just, I said, I think you've got the wrong tape on. He says, no, man, that's you. I says, well, it doesn't sound like that out there. He says, that's what it sounds like, mate. I said, no, I don't think so, mate. If you want to come out and stand beside me, I'll play it. So he was a very sort of um, world-weary engineer. So he scraped himself off the chair and came out, and I played, and he says, Sounds the same to me, mate. I said, for fuck's sake, here we go. So I walked in, back in with him, and I stood beside him, and I said, Can you not mess about with a few knobs and tweeters and, you know, do something? That's too fuzzy, too distorted. My guitar is clean. So he eventually bothered and he started getting the tone I wanted. And it was like that for quite a lot of the album. Um, but, you know, th- uh, like listening to it these days, I'm glad that I did, because it, it sounds pretty good in some places, you know? Yes, sonically, it is good. And you also you had a one of the tracks, The Rocker. It, mm-hmm. it, that Was that the kind of the track that you would were proudest of on that album? Sorry? The Rocker. Was that one of the songs that you were most proudest of on that album? Um, yeah. We we released that as a single. Uh, you know, Whiskey in the Jar was the first single. And then we made a big mistake and recorded Randall's Tango for the second single, single which did absolutely nothing. Um, and then the three of us heard The Rocker and we said, yeah, and put that out as a single thinking it was going to take off but it didn't but it became a very very popular underground number for a lot of metal bands and so on and so on um yeah i was pleased with it yes i was yeah yeah and when you were doing that album and finished it did you i mean because quite soon after that you leave the band did you feel that things were sort of coming to an end during that process well I've got this book out. It's just been out. Um, and uh, there's a lot of all that stuff in there. But what, basically, in a nutshell, was I was going through a, a sort of a very, very hellish, down, dark time in my life uh, through, well, I suppose through drinking alcohol and taking dope, uh, a lot of dope, and taking a lot of acid. And it was all great fun. I mean, don't get me wrong, I had a ball. But at one point, the whole thing started crumbling before me. 
and um, we were in Germany doing a tour. And when we came home, I found out my girlfriend was sleeping with a guy upstairs, and we had a ten-month-year-old boy, and she fucked off to Canada with this guy with my son. Um, and around that period in time, I was living in this DOS house. It's really strange because everybody in Ireland thought we were living it up in London, you know, penthouses. And <laughs> if they only knew, if they'd only seen us in London in these one rooms, uh, you know what I mean? It was really difficult. Uh, anyway, because that happened, I started drinking more and smoking more dope. And then I had a very, very, very bad trip on acid one night. I mean, it was like as low as you could go. And things just started going a bit crazy, to be honest with you. I went to the doctor, and he ended up giving me uh, Valium, warning me not to take it with the alcohol and the drugs, and I took it with the alcohol and the drugs. So I'm walking about like a basket case, basically. Uh, my playing started suffering. I, I wasn't practicing anymore. It just started really starting to get shaky. Um, and lo and behold, one night, we were doing an Irish tour, and I end up, this particular night, I was just out of it completely, totally zombiesville. I didn't know how, who I was, where I was, what I was doing, and I went out to play a gig, and the place was stuffed with people. And after about the third song, I just said, I've had it. i got to get out of here, or I'm a dead man. And I just got my guitar and threw it up in the air and kicked all my amplifiers off and walked off. And that was it. Yes, that was that was definitely a moment. And I couldn't have, when you were talking about that moment, and you mentioned acid and also Germany, I always remember the story of Peter Green from Fleetwood Mac. That was kind of where he took his kind of that infamous acid trip where kind of he never was the same again. So Absolutely, absolutely. And, and that that's kind of one of those, when the member, the other members of the band talk about that experience and that gang of people that he was with, you know, they just look so, they still look so devastated and haunted and angry at the same time. So obviously, yes, the, run, the horrendous. So then did you go back to Belfast and with your parents? No, I was... I was um... I was with my London girlfriend, Linda, and, um, I mean, I put her through a lot of stuff. God love her. Um, and after I'd left that night, we still had a flat in, um, when I say a flat, we had a sort of a box in London. And she said, what are you going to do now? I said, I've got to go out of London first. You know, I can't, I can't, I can't take London anymore. So we ended up going back to Dublin instead of Belfast because uh, I thought there would be more happening in Dublin than Belfast as far as music's concerned. But when I got to Dublin, um, I sort of lost interest in playing music and I bought a push bike and I tried to give up cigarettes and I cut down on my drinking and so on and so on. And it went on like that for a little while. And I formed uh, one or two bands, which were 
like schoolboys, you know, just pathetic, to be honest with you. And then I got a, a phone call from Noel Redding, just out of the blue. Um, Jimmy Hendrix's bass player. Yes. And I thought it was one of my friends sending me up. Yes. <laughs> you know, and he, he, I remember the day I picked up the phone. I said, hello. He said, hello, mate. Noel <laughs> Redding here. Can I speak to Eric Bell? I said, uh, yeah, Eric Bell speaking. <laughs> I said, I didn't believe him. I thought it was going to be a bloke would suddenly burst out laughing and say, ah, cheers, is Harry, how are you? He didn't. So he's going, ah, hello, mate. I heard you just left in Lizzie, and so on and so on. Anyway, I ended up going down to, he lived in uh, West Cork. He had moved from the States because he said it was just parties every night and he wanted to get away from all of that for a while. So him and, him and his American girlfriend, Carol, had bought this gigantic farmhouse uh, in West Cork, and he invited me down. And I went down. He met me at the train station, and I went. Uh, he took me into his house, you know. And I was just starstruck with the guy because he was Jimmy Hendrix's bass player. Yeah. You know, gold albums everywhere, all down the hall, hundreds of guitars and uh, amplifiers, and this, that, and the other. Um, Enough you but I thought it was going to be a three-piece band he was forming, but it wasn't. He had a keyboard player who wrote all the songs, uh, and he he gave me a Noel gave me a cassette of about twelve songs he wanted me to learn to see if it was going to work out between us. So um, a few days later, I took the cassette and went back to Dublin. And played it, and I went, "What the fuck is that? <laughs> what's all this about?" You know, it was, it was like a, I don't know what it was like. I, I couldn't relate to the songs. I just could not. Lots of keyboards and piano, and I thought, "What? what where am I going to fit in here?" You know, there's no space. There's no spaces. Yes. It's all, it's all tingly You know, I thought, "I can't, I can't hear myself playing in these songs." But I stuck with it and stuck with it and learned uh, an awful lot of guitar pieces that I'd make up to put into the songs. And then I went down for the first rehearsal. And uh, the state, you know, the state of Noel sometimes, he was out of it, you know, just totally out of it, walking around the music room. Um, smoking very strong dope and drinking uh, Guinness, Guinness and cider mixed oh. and uh, vodka. Uh, you know, and I'm standing here looking at him going, listen, mate, out of the frying pan into the fire, you know. Hmm. And he got, he used to get really cynical. Um, the first rehearsal, we were in, in his rehearsal room and I was playing through one of his amplifiers and we're halfway through the first song and he stops playing and he comes over to me and goes, fuck me, mate. And basically pushes me out of the way and starts fiddling with all the, the, the controls on the amplifier, you know. And I'm standing there going, you know, no one's ever done this to me before in my life. And I'm going... Again, that situation with Anne, 
will I tell him to stuff his band or will I stay and see what what's going to happen? You know. Yeah. But it was it was it was soul destroying. It was desperate. I, I hated the place. I didn't like him. Um, and it went on for quite a while. And then one day I turned around to him. And I said, "Listen, mate, stuff your effing band. I've fucking had it." And I got a lift back to Dublin. And he was on the phone to me about four days later. Right, mate, coming down for a rehearsal. I says, listen, man, I told you, I'm I'm finished, I'm gone. And I put the phone down on him. And then our manager phoned me and he said, what's going on? I said, I can't get on my knoll. It's I don't like the music, everything about it feels wrong. He says... Do you realise we've got a, an American tour nearly lined up for you guys? You can't just walk out. I'll fly over to Ireland. I'll fly you from Dublin to Cork. Noel and me, the three of us will get together in a hotel and iron this fucking thing out. So we did that. And the three of us were sitting around the table and our manager said, Right, what's your problem? And I said... I said, no, I said, I, I don't, I can't figure the guy out. I mean, I'm s- sitting reading a book in the bedroom in his house and he comes in to the bedroom with the keyboard player and drummer and says, we're going down to the pub, mate, you coming? And I said, no, I'm okay, but I, I think I'll just relax and read a book. Fuck me, he's reading a fucking book. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, that's that's what I was like. It was just, it was so stupid, it was fucking laughable. <laughs> and I said, I said to the manager, you know, I can't do a shit without this guy watching me or saying there's something wrong. I said, I, I don't need it. I don't need it. I'm out of thin Lizzie, trying to get my head back together. And I meet up with this guy. And Noel grabbed my hand and said, Eric, I'm really sorry, mate. I really am. I didn't know things were like this. And we ended up doing um, 11 weeks in America, which I'd never been there, and it was incredible. Um, and me and Noel became very friendly in America. Oh, that's uh, yeah, wow. Yeah, we became quite close. God, that must have been... Because I have to say, the, the album covers, the two albums that you released... <laughs> Well, probably oh. the the worst album covers of all time. Oh my Jesus, my God Almighty! I I I just I don't believe that if Hendrix fans, which obviously there's quite a few there, come down to our gigs and seen the band, I don't know what they'd make of it. It was like the fucking Wurzels, you know. <laughs> I mean, it really was. It was. I was quite embarrassed up there on the stage with them. And uh, I didn't know what the audience made of it at all. You yeah, know? but but the album covers. I mean, did you did you think? Oh, oh mate, uh, yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> the only thing to, to put them on through darts at them, you know. Yeah, I I must admit. I mean, did you sort of at that stage did the mystique of the Jimi Hendrix experience slightly fade and think, how did Jimi Hendrix put up with this guy for five years? I have no idea. I thought well, Hendrix obviously was. You know, it was his thing, and I suppose there would have been a a mile long um, queue of bass players that wanted to 
join of all that left, you know. Yes, okay. But uh, I don't know why Hendrix kept him for so long. Uh, I must admit, though, watching some of the live gigs with Hendrix and all playing bass, there is sometimes he is really on the ball. You know, yes. he really, he really, because Mitchell is a jazz drummer, and he's flirting about all over the kit. Hendrix is somewhere out in space, and Noel is the anchor point on the bass, and he never slips up. You know. Yeah. So he's he's as a person probably not great, but as a musician, you would have rate you rated him, or did you never see the sort of genius side of Noel Redding? Um, I saw it now and again some nights on stage, even with the Noel Redding band. He would get this incredible bass sound. I mean, just, man, it was huge. Um, and whenever he was into it, he was, a, he was a very good bass player. But it didn't last. You know, he, he just, I don't know what it was. An old Redding band... I don't know what it was. It, it just the chemistry was all wrong. Um, the songwriting, Dave Clark, who was a songwriter, um, wrote some very good lyrics. I must say, we really did. But the structures of the song were uh, there were nowhere. You know, it was just very insipid. Uh, wasn't much feel to. It. I mean, I couldn't play. I couldn't ad lib to save my life with that band. Yeah, my God. You know, like the band I have now, I I just sail away. I just ad-lib about 80% of the show and thoroughly enjoy it. Yes. But I couldn't, I, do, I couldn't do that. No, I'd lost that, that edge. Absolutely. And did you, um, I mean, once that finished, which was kind of, I suppose it was that period where sort of music was changing because you had the punk movement appearing and prog rock had slightly had it, it was starting to have its day, really. Did did you sort of feel like you'd had enough of the music industry? Well, um, after Noel, I, I ended up back in London again. Um, I'd formed some bands with... Um, these guys from Dublin, which was absolutely pathetic. It was a joke, an absolute joke. These guys more interested in chasing women than practicing or uh, uh, practicing on their instruments and things. It was just a, a hobby to them, you know. And uh, I got I got I got them quite a few gigs in London to try them out, and we died of death. And things went like that for a while. Then I started. Um, I got married, and then. I lived in London, and I started giving guitar lessons uh, just to supplement my income. And then I got a, a phone call out of the blue one day. Picks up the phone, says hello, and this voice goes, "Do these names mean anything to you, Eric?" <laughs> um, Dick Hextel Smith, Victor Brooks, and Annie, and. Um, it was like uh, Keith Hartley. Um, all these guys are ex-members of the John Mayles Blues Records. And I'm going, wow. He says, we formed a band called Main Squeeze. It's an eight, 
eight-piece blues band. And they're all superb pedigree musicians. We'd like to know if you'd come down and have a jam with us. And I was in the car even before he put the phone down, you know. Um, and I went down to this audition, more or less, and it was in Keith Hartley's um, carpenter yard. Keith Hartley was a, the drummer with um, John Mel for a while, and then he had his own band, Big Chief. He's pretty famous. So anyway, I went down and set up my gear, and they said to me, OK, what do you want to try, Eric? I said, uh, a slow blues and see. And we started playing, and it was on rail. I mean, I was used to three-piece bands, and I'm with a trumpet player, two saxes, a sort of a Hammond organ, um, a drummer, a bass player, and a harmonica player. So there's eight of us together. And it was on, oh, man, the sound was, you would die for it. And I thought, yes, <laughs> this is it. This is the band I've wanted to be in for a long time. But what happened was uh, the punk scene was incredibly popular at this point in time, and we could not get a gig. With all those names, we couldn't get a gig. Hardly anywhere in England. Yes. You know, do you spit in the audience? No. All right, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we ended up, playing in Europe quite a lot, uh, in Germany, Sweden, Denmark. It's always the Germany audience, isn't it? The German. Absolutely. They... And they're, they're all still into it. Yes. You know, they're all into their jazz and their blues, which was brilliant. And, uh, and then we ended up uh, backing Bo Diddley for about five months, which was amazing. Um, oh, he was something. He was something else. <laughs> And uh, and that was brilliant, but there was no money, absolutely no money whatsoever. There was like eight people in the band plus a driver, and the fucking this big Mercedes truck was earning more than us with with petrol, and uh, there was no money at all. I couldn't make any money from the band. It's like you know. 30 quid a gig or something. It was, it was on, and the band was excellent. Really shit hot. But it was too big, and we weren't getting the money. And, um, you know, I would be on a tour for about three weeks in Europe, and then I'd come back, my wife would say, how much did you make? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, well, I owe the band, <laughs> you know, it, it, was, it was hard work. What a pity. Yes. Great, great band. It was really, so really good band. And what was it like when, you know, like fast forward a few years in, you did a tribute night for Phil, didn't you? And, and you joined, um, yes, Gary Moore on stage as it performed Whiskey in the Jar. Was that quite an emotional moment? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Uh, it, it was because uh, I didn't even know I was going to be asked or involved in that. And, um, like me and Gary were very good friends for a very long time. Uh, I met Gary when I was 11 years of age uh, in this little club in, in Ireland, and I heard him playing at 11, and I was about 16 then or something. And we used to go and watch each other playing, 
around the clubs in Belfast. So we became quite close. Uh, and then one day he got my phone number from somewhere and he phoned me up. I hadn't heard from him for a very long time. He says, Hey, Eric, it's Gary, Gary Moore. I said, fuck's sake, Gary, how you doing, man? So anyway, he asked me would I like to be on the, the Vibe for Fellow. Um, yes. You know, Gary Moore and friends. And I said, oh, yeah, brilliant. So he invited me down to his house. He lived in um, Brighton at that point. I was in London. And I used to go down and stay with him then, you know, one or two days at a time. And we'd have a few drinks and play guitar and have a laugh and things. Yeah, so it, it was real nice being asked to do that. Yes. And um, it turned out incredibly popular. Like, it's got over two million views or something, which is <laughs> which is quite something. It's absolutely. I mean, as I, I suppose, like a lot of things, the work gets reevaluated and then gets more appreciated. You know. I mean, fashion, yeah. when things happen, you know, you have that zeitgeist moment, you know, which is often three to five years, and then the next thing happens, so the thing before that gets kind of disappeared, and then yeah. 30 years later, people start looking back and, actually, that was really good. Yeah. And, you know, and I well, spoke... I mean, I'm, I'm, at the moment, I'm, I'm absolutely nearly speechless with the, the amount of publicity that St. Lizzie's been getting the past six months. It's been incredible. Um... You know, like whiskey in the jar, 50 years old, and they're still talking about it. You know, people are still want to hear it, and, and like 50 years on, you know? Yes, absolutely. It's like, it's, uh, it's incredible. And, uh, I'm, you know, I'm getting a lot of work at the moment, you know. I'm, I don't know how many gigs I've got this year. I'm like 50 or something so far. A lot. Yeah. And uh, about a year and three months ago, I couldn't get a gig to save me life. All of a sudden, this resurge of Thin Lizzy, uh, they've re-released the first three albums again on vinyl. And I think there's a box set coming out and God knows what, which is, which is amazing. Yeah. You know? And did you, um, I mean, because you mentioned, oh God, I'm going to cough. <coughs> You know, when you mentioned your early years, you know, with, you know, relationships and children, did you manage to sort of patch those up in, in any kind of constructive way? Well, um, as I said, my, uh, like my girlfriend fucked off to Canada with this guy and my, my 10 year, my 10 month old son. And I hadn't heard them, that, that was over, that was gone, long gone. And I hadn't heard anything about anything about them. Um, and about uh, 12 years, 13 years later, I got a phone call out of the blue. At this point, I'm living on my own in London, in Shepherd's Bush. And I hear, I say, hello? I go, uh, is that Eric Bell I'm speaking to? Uh, yeah. This is Eleanor. I'm fuck me, what? Uh, you know, the girl had buggered off. So she said... Um, her parents were Irish and she was from Cork. And she said that she's living in Canada and she's coming over to visit her parents in Cork. And Robin, our son, found out that Ian wasn't his real dad and he wanted to meet his real dad. 
So what I mind if they called in via car into London to, to see me. And I said, no, not at all. Brilliant. So uh, about 10 days later, this taxi arrives outside my front door and this blonde girl gets out with this young blonde bloke. <laughs> and I'm looking through the window going, fucking what? And uh, I come in, you know, and it's like unreal. I met my son, who's about 13, really handsome little guy. Um, yeah, so we, we sort of, you know, made friends, and he got to know me a bit and, and so on. And then about two, three years later, I flew over to Canada to visit him. You know, so we sort of, we patched things up a bit, you know. Um, you know, I had, <clears throat> had quite a few relationships uh, and a lot of things happened. Um, you know, my didn't really want to get into this, but my my wife passed away a year and a half ago, and it blew me off the fucking planet. Um, you know. Yes. But uh, but I'm uh, I'm I'm really grateful that. Um, the amount of work that's coming up because it'll it'll give me something to get really into and yes. get really in, get really involved in it. And I, I love playing gigs and meeting people and all that type of stuff. You know. Absolutely. Well, you know, it's great that you know the, you've. You've. I mean, it's kind of now in your seventies, but then you know you look at the Stones and eat people like Eve Pop and, <laughs> and and you sort of think, well, I guess you know. You, on one level, when you were growing up, you probably thought you'd never be, and anyone would be still doing it in the 70s. Well, the blues guys and jazz guys, but they mostly die before they got Oh, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's, yes. it's like, um, like the times we live in, in one respect, is incredible for people over 60, 70. Because uh, I sort of, I take my hat off to the Rolling Stones because they're the ones that's paved the way for all the granddads. There's no doubt about it. Um, for a guy of 76 and a, and a guitar player of 76 and a drummer of 78 or something can still get up on the stage and deliver is unreal. And and um, <laughs> I remember years ago, if you would have walked on stage, you know, at 70 to play, they said, you know, sort off, granddad. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. But, but now... You know, like you read of people who are making albums at, at 80 and going out in tours at 80 years of age. And it's like, brilliant. Yes, it is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I love it. I know. I do. I think it's great, you know, and, and it's kind of just fantastic to see so many. I suppose it's that, you know, the aches and pains go away when you have to sort of, you, you walk out there and you're on the on the stage and you've got the audience and you've got the noise. and uh, Absolutely. Yes. And I think that that mind over matter is quite extraordinary, really. And obviously the Stones, yeah, they did. They were the kind of pioneers. But then people like the Shadows, you know, were in a yeah, way. Yeah, that's but, true. But it was just, it, you know, oh. if you can still do it, you know. I mean, I would not, I would not do it if 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 my plan wasn't up to standard and and maybe I had arthritis or rheumatism, which I haven't got, thank God. Um, you know. 
I wouldn't do it. I would hate to go out and play and see a write-up or somebody word of mouth saying, I went to see Eric Bell last night. What was he like? Oh, for fuck's sake. Like, I should put it away, you know. Yeah. I, I would I would hate that, you know. Sure. But then, but they're just like kind of vaguely lastly, but, they, you know, when, when I looked at Spotify and, and saw Thin Lizzy, you know, Whiskey in a Jar was the second most popular song that, you you know, they did. With thirty, was it thirty-seven and a half million listens on Spotify, and obviously, you know, there's other streaming things. Mm. But you know that that's that says a lot about the quality of a song that you did fifty years ago. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Like, "Whiskey in the Jar" was the hardest piece, hardest piece of music I've ever made up in my life. I didn't know where to start. You know. I'm used to playing rock, I'm used to playing blues, I'm used to playing a little bit of jazz, but a, a jazzed-up Irish folk song, <laughs> you know, what do you do, you know? It took me forever yes. to, even, to even get the intro together, you know? It took a long, long, long time. Yeah, so maybe that's why it's still popular I don't know you know it's a lot of work went into it really yeah. did and as you, as you have lived a lot in, in your life you know with mm. the, the intensity I mean just lastly what would you say to an 18 year old self starting out you know if you, if you could just whisper one thing you know to, as, as they were just embarking on that journey that you did decades ago I would I would say to any musician you know young youngish um do your own thing. Do your own thing. And work your bollocks off at it. I mean, really work at it every day of your life. But do your own thing. But there's no point doing your own thing half-heartedly because there's too many good players out there. Um, so you have to, if you're going to do your own thing, you really have to give it the R's you know, every day, work at it. Yes. And that is the best piece of advice I could give anybody. Excellent. That's good. Well, look, Eric, thank you ever so much for your time. And um, what I'll do, when I do this, you know, you know, interviews, it, I'll, I'll, I can send you a link, and then you can always put it on your website, which I see you've been... Um, sure, yes, mate. And, uh, David, I must say, it's one of the best interviews I've had in a very, very, very long time. Oh, well, thank you very much. That's very nice of you to say that. And it really uh, is. Yes. Well, thank you. And uh, I really appreciate your time, obviously. Um, it's brilliant. Thank you. I've, I feel very honoured and touched. <laughs> so thank you ever so much. And um, All right, David. And thank, and thank you again. Take care and have a lovely year. I hope it goes well. Same to yourself, man. See you. Bye-bye. All the best. Bye. Cheers, bye.